the Mike Lupica Podcast. We are back now with the great Mike Lupica. He's one of the country's Mike most Lupica prominent Mike Lupica has covered just about every sport. Candid interviews with legends he calls friends. I was talking to Jordan about Woods after the basketball game mm-hmm. the other night. Everybody wants everybody in sports to be the next this guy, the next this guy. And Michael said, no, he's the first Tiger. In your face questions. How much of a dope is he? Compelling. A billion dollar industry, the biggest we've ever had in sports in this country, often comes down to a flip of the coin. This is the Mike Lupica Podcast. Here's Mike Lupica. Hello and thanks for joining us on the Mike Lupica Podcast. Today we're going to have a lot of fun. We're joined by my dear friend, the one and only Bob Costas. But before we get started with Mr. Costas, I want to tell you about 1-800-Flowers. Okay, relationship tip number one. It's not going to truly feel like Valentine's unless there's a surprise bouquet of roses involved. And this season, the biggest and brightest roses are only found at 1-800-Flowers.com. Right now, when you order early, 1-800-Flowers has amazing deals on vibrant and romantic Valentine's rose bouquets, arrangements, and more, starting at just $29.99. There are so many unbelievable deals from 1-800-Flowers, but you have to hurry. Pick your delivery date and let 1-800-Flowers handle the rest. When it comes to Valentine's, I don't settle for anything less than my rose authority, 1-800-Flowers.com. Listen up to order Valentine's bouquets, arrangements, and more starting at $29.99. Go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, and enter my code, Lupica. Order today and save at 1-800-Flowers.com, code Lupica. Welcome back to the Mike Lupica Podcast. We are joined today by one of my oldest and dearest friends. Um, uh, Bob Costas and I are the same age. We were in college together. We moved to New York City about the same time. We once lived across First Avenue from each other. Um, Last July, I was uh, honored and pleased to be in Cooperstown, New York, to see Bob uh, uh, finally inducted into the broadcaster's uh, wing of the Hall of Fame. And if you have uh, the ability to go on YouTube and, and see this speech, it's not only a hymn to his own career, it is a hymn to, to a sport that he has loved his whole life. Um, he uh, recently and amicably um, uh, ended a relationship with NBC that lasted 39 years. He has been at this um, around a quarter of uh, a, a half a century. And for my money, and, and I, I say this having already told you about um, our friendship, no one has ever had a career in broadcasting um, the likes of which uh, Bob Costas has had. And, and so if you want to make this um, your message from when people call you Costas, you can. <laughs> they, they'd soon become annoyed at how long it took before they heard the beep. And so I, I guess, I guess you're really missing um, knowing your feelings about pro football and, and, and having been made aware of them over a quarter of a century. You're probably really sorry that you're not in Atlanta this week, aren't you, Robert? Yeah, yeah, I'm pining away, pining away for all the hoopla, the spectacle, the bloated excess. It's my kind of thing. And watching, I don't know if you, I bet you probably didn't. I was on an airplane, so I watched a fair amount of Commissioner Goodell's mm-hmm. yearly Super Bowl press conference. They used to have it on, on Friday when, Bob, you, you must remember that Pete Rozelle used to turn that thing into a tour de force. He was so good at it. Yeah. And, 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 and Roger is, is just not good in, in this setting, but now they have it on Wednesday instead of Friday. I, I was struck by, a series of non-answers, which didn't surprise me, 
but he never really addressed uh, the Colin Kaepernick uh, situation. All he said, you know, he put it off on the teams and said they want to win. And I tweeted out something this morning. Yes, the Redskins thought the best chance they had to win after Alex Smith got hurt this year was Josh Johnson working on his 11th team, having never won a game as a starter till 2011, and Mark Sanchez. Well, Colin Kaepernick may, you could argue, uh, may not be quite as good as he was a few years ago, and the league in general may have caught up with the style that he played or that RG3 played when healthy. Those are legitimate arguments. He's yeah. not Tom Brady. He's not Aaron Rodgers. He's not Russell Wilson. But is he one of, let's say you are only going too deep, is he one of the 64 best quarterbacks living and breathing at this point in time? Of course he is. Talking to Bob Costas on the Mike Lubica podcast. By the way, getting back to to NBC, you know, this was treated like news when, but but this is news that you have been living with and and moving towards the door for what a year and a half. Uh, it, it's it, it was a process that just finally played out, and the news media became yeah. aware of it. Yeah, Andrew Marchand, uh, who tries to report on sports media rather than just saying whatever occurs to him, uh, he called me from the New York Post. And he followed up. He said, what's your status with NBC? And I wasn't looking to make an announcement. I didn't make an announcement at all. I simply answered his question. He said, have you settled your contract with them? I said, yes, we have, quietly and amicably. And then he wrote around it. Everything he wrote was accurate. And, you know, people have a zillion other things to pay attention to. So they treated it as if it was news in that moment, as you said, whereas, in fact, for a year and a half, we'd been moving toward it. And people always speculate about things. So I have people saying to me, you know, are you okay with this? Or why did they phase you out? They didn't phase me, they didn't phase me out. Yeah. If anyone cares, and I'll try to make it as brief as possible, in 2012 I signed a contract that would have me doing the Olympics through the Rio Games in 2016 and football through that football season. And then I had the option of either continuing or activating a kind of emeritus clause for the next four years where I'd be called upon for special events or when commentaries or interviews might be uh, appropriate and kind of have my name on it. And so I opted, I told them in 2015, that was what I wanted to do. And they said, well, you can always think it over, and if you want to do another Olympics or you want to do a couple more seasons of football, which I wanted to do about as much as walking on hot coals, the football (laughs) part, um, but the Olympics, I just felt like, hey, I'd done a dozen of them. That's enough. It was time for me to step aside on my own terms. And then uh, they went out and wisely hired Mike Tirico. But I told them in 2015 that this is what I intended to do. Tirico was a very wise hire because he's very talented, very versatile, and still has many strong years ahead of him as a host and as a play-by-play man. Um, And then as this emeritus clause began to play out, we realized, you know, there isn't all that much for me to do. Uh, Network sports, every network doesn't really have a place for ongoing journalism, long-form interviews, and they don't have baseball anymore. You know, the people who said, well, I guess, you know, he had a good run, but out with the old, in with the new. (laughs) Except, how old is Mike Emmerich? 72, 73? Yeah. How old is Al Michaels? Mid-70s? They're still the gold standard at their respective sports. If NBC still had baseball, I'd still be there. 
talking to my pal Bob Costas on the Mike Lupica podcast. And uh, again, if anybody if anybody doubts Costas's version, they can call me because we've been talking about this literally since 2012. You know, you you could see the door from there. And and Bob, it's been so clear to me, knowing you as well as I did, that the thing that you want to do most, and I I, I expect that you are going to find a, a, a platform for long form journalism and and those town halls at which you are so good, but you want to do baseball games, and and right. you're now doing baseball games, and and baseball just keeps selling the the big package to Fox, which I think now runs for a hundred and seven more years. Yeah, and in in fact, we we kind of waited. <laughs> before finally uh, deciding that there was nothing there. We kind of waited. Uh, and then Fox, as expected, uh, swept the whole thing up, just as NBC swept all the Olympics up through 2032. And that's, and that's the way it goes, you know? And, and, and Bob, again, and, and, and th- this might sound like inside baseball, or in this case, inside football, your feelings of, of ambivalence about you know, the sport that has become our national passion mm-hmm. goes back to, I, I think it goes back to when you were doing the pregame and halftime and postgame show on NBC. Yeah. And in fact, just for the record, um, I asked to step aside in 1993 because I was just becoming more ambivalent and felt less connected to it. I didn't begrudge anyone else their feelings. It just didn't feel right for me. And Dick Ebersol, who has always been my patron, we have our occasional disagreements because that's what happens when you have give and take sometimes, but I don't have more appreciation or gratitude for anyone I've ever worked for or with than I have for Dick Ebersol. And he was always great to me personally, not just professionally. And so when I asked in 1993 to step aside, he said, okay, I stepped aside. And then when I went to HBO uh, right after the turn of the century, um, they wanted me to do a long-form journalistic show, which I was very happy to do, which you alluded to. But then Ross Greenberg said, would you also host Inside the NFL? And I was willing to do that because it was a different kind of show. You weren't sitting there all day long watching a zillion games and doing all the highlights over and over. The, the whole tone of it and content of it was different than the network shows. Uh, every show had a, a thoughtful interview or a thoughtful feature piece of some kind, some kind of journalistic component, no restrictions on what you could say. And I was a good person to kind of be the ringmaster of that with Dan Marino and Chris Carter and, and Chris Collinsworth. So I felt comfortable doing that. And then how do you get pulled back in? Well, when NBC got Sunday Night Football, which was a brilliant play oh by Ebersol, the executive, he kind of just hit his hand and at the very last minute made his play and got it at a relative bargain price, and it's become the number one thing in all of primetime television, let alone sports. So it was a brilliant move for Ebersol and for NBC. Dick excitedly says, and these are his words, we're going to put together a Mount Rushmore of broadcasting. We're going to have Michaels and Madden in the booth, and we're going to have you and Chris Collinsworth in the studio, and eventually Collinsworth will replace Madden, and we just have to do this. And he was so excited and so over the moon about it. And we went back so long, and I had such personal loyalty that I said, okay, I'll do it. Anybody else, any other situation, never would have done it. And there, there you go. I wind up doing it until 2016, and now it's finally in my rearview mirror. How many times over the years have we, t- have we talked – 
and yelled occasionally about the the coin toss and the overtime Oy. rule in football. And Oy. it happened, Bob, it happened again. It happened twice to Aaron Rodgers when he was the best player in the sport, okay? Yep. It happened to Matt Ryan, I think, in his MVP year. Yep. The kid from Kansas City, he's going to be the MVP. Yep. And all of those games we're talking about in the playoffs, they became spectators because of something as random as the flip of the coin. Bob, think about how different Tom Brady's legacy might be if the Patriots hadn't won the toss in the tuck, tuck rule game and then didn't win the toss in the Super Bowl and didn't win the toss in Kansas City. Absolutely. And here's the thing about this that's particularly galling. This is a league, and I've said this on the air before, this is a league that literally will look at six different angles <laughs> to parse a call in the second quarter of a game between the Browns and the Bengals in October because their mantra is, get it right, get it right, get it right. Yeah. But then, in the postseason, they will let these games, the most important games, be so disproportionately influenced by something as random as the flip of a coin. Now, during the regular season, I get the idea that they want to get the games over. Yeah. Part of it is player safety, but also it's a business. The 1 o'clock games bleed into the 4 o'clock games. You don't want them to go on forever. Okay, fair enough. Score a touchdown, first possession, game over. Kick a field goal, the other team gets at least one possession. Okay, we get, we get all that. But where's anybody going in the postseason? <laughs> Where are they going in the Super Bowl? You've got the largest audience on the planet. If you played for six hours, the audience would only grow. What's, what's the rush? So here's this get-it-right get it league that just decides they'll flip a coin. This is the rough equivalent of seventh game of the World Series. Home team doesn't matter. We'll flip a coin if the seventh yeah. game of the World Series goes to extra innings. Yeah. Now, if the team that bats first scores on a single, the other team gets to bat. But if they hit a home run, World Series over. Goodbye. What sense would that make? I can't, Bob, I can't even think of a comparable situation in the NBA. They, we, we go to overtime, game seven of the NBA finals. They flip a coin. Um, uh, the Warriors get possession. If Steph makes a three, the game's over. Right. But if, they, if, if Draymond Green has a putback for two, the other team gets to inbound the ball. And they get to try to make it through. We're talking to Bob Costas. And now, so yesterday, Goodell, getting back to Goodell, your, your old friend, Roger Goodell, um, I don't dislike he, him at all. I, I, no, no, I, I he's, sort of have found, I've enjoyed his company when I've been with him, and his wife Jane is very nice. You know, it's not personal in any way. No, he just didn't want to be interviewed by you. Okay, no, so, um, that's true. <laughs> uh, so so now he's asked about the call in the Saints Rams game, right? And and he kind of said, yeah, it should have been made, and then he kicks it back to the competition committee or whatever the hell they're 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 going to do it. But, but, Bob, here again, you, you just talked about get it right, okay? And I understand that you can't um, review every single judgment call. But somebody should have see, foreseen the doomsday scenario yeah. where a judgment call was literally going to alter pro football history the way those coin flips have. Bob, Drew Brees has just turned 40 years old, okay? That may be his last mm -hmm. best chance at a Super Bowl. His team... The only way they could have lost the game is if they'd missed a field goal, okay, after that call. But I, I can't remember a comparable call other than the tuck rule, which was called, and, and sort of vaguely backed up the rule where, where a flag or a non-flag had that much impact yeah. on a season. Well, here's 
basically where the NFL has been on this for a long time. The Get It Right League. The Get It Right League. Let's review a play while people are freezing in December and the score is 28-6 to late in the third quarter. Let's stop this for three minutes and take a look at all this because it's essential that we get it right. And yet we have this disaster waiting to happen. It's as if you see that an intersection is dangerous, but we're not going to put a stop sign up until we have a 10-car pileup in the intersection. You shouldn't have to be a deep thinker to see that in the abstract this was waiting to happen. You shouldn't have to have it slam you in the face to realize that you've set the stage for this. So when Roger says, look, the game is played by human beings. Officials are very good, but they're not perfect. They get it wrong sometimes. That's a non-answer to this. The problem is not that the officials missed the call, although they did egregiously. The problem is that the league doesn't have a fail-safe in the most important games. We know that pass interference is a judgment call. You'd be driven crazy if every judgment call were reviewed. But this is simple enough, and nobody would object to it. In the fourth quarter of playoff games, forget about the regular season, fourth quarter of postseason games, you have someone upstairs who is empowered to reverse any call or, or make a non-call that should have been made from upstairs. And the, the rule is very simple. It, it can't be borderline. It has to be so blatant and so consequential that any reasonable person would say, hold it, hold it. It has to be the equivalent of Don Denkinger missing the call. I was just going to ask you, Bob, I was just going to ask you about it, but we didn't have replay in those years. Right, didn't have replay, exactly. But it has to be that egregious, that obvious, where even rabid fans of the team that got the short straw on, on that upstairs review could not possibly argue against it. It's so blatant that it's obvious. And that's all that would have been necessary in New Orleans. Somebody, you know, pushes the button and says, hold on. Here it is. That's pass interference. We're talking to Bob Costas. And again, Denkinger is the obvious frame of reference. And all people have to do is go back and look at the, the call and, and, and the photograph, <laughs> the photograph, the photographic evidence from Game 6 of the 1985 World Series. The, the, the tuck rule was it was such a stupid rule. They probably enforced it correctly that night, even though it was a monumentally boneheaded um, uh, uh, rule in the first place. Okay, because if you go back and watch Brady on that play, he fumbled the ball. That's it's 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 not in dispute. And then I can think of calls that uh, remember there was a call. I think uh, Lambeer got called for a a, 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 a a foul call in the NBA finals one time that that. I think that the the Pistons would have ended up. I forget how that came out. Was it Kareem? Did we get a, a phantom call against Kareem? But the, the, what happened in New Orleans to me, to me, was they had the doomsday scenario in two cities and for both conference championships. Mm-hmm. Coin flip decides it again. Yep. Then again, and, and Bob, here's my favorite thing. Getting back to the coin flip because you know how stuck I am on this. Okay. Well, the defense had a chance right. to, to stop him. And I say, but Patrick Mahomes didn't have anything to do but, with that. But, but also, I, I've heard very smart people say, the defense has a chance. Stop him. Okay, then you tell me, under these rules, what team would ever opt to kick? Right. I right. mean, you, you defer in a, at the beginning of a game because you want the ball in the, in the second half. But there's no scenario. If it's just that simple, stop him, then I, I want to ask you, if they flipped the coin a thousand times, would the team 
that won the toss, <laughs> even once, elect to kick. Oh, and have the other team receive the ball under these rules? Absolutely not. It came up again in in the Tuck Rule game against the Raiders. The the Patriots win the toss in the snow in overtime. They go down and kick a field goal. They win. The rules were different then. The Super Bowl against Atlanta after the probably the greatest game of football I've ever seen. They win the toss. Matt Ryan it becomes a spectator. Brady takes his team down. They score a touchdown. They win the Super Bowl. And then it happens yep. again in Kansas City. And and by the way, it may happen again in Atlanta That's for Super right. Bowl Fifty Three. That's right. The get the get it right league. Yeah, go go figure. But Bob. Oh, by the way, you, you want the perfect example of what we're talking about again pre replay, and we can think of a lot of things: the Denkinger call, Jeffrey Mayer reaching over, and oh, yeah, that's, Garcia yeah, 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 somehow yeah, yeah. missing yeah, that yeah. with Tony Tarasco parked under it, and instead of making the catch, Derek Jeter gets a home run. Those would easily be reversed uh, with present replay in place. Game six, 1998 NBA Finals, the Michael Jordan perfect shot to win it. That's what sticks in everybody's mind. During the course of that game, Howard Isley hit what should have been a three, and they ruled a shot clock violation, and we replayed it and froze it. He clearly got it away. That erased the three. Ron Harper hit, I'm not sure if it was a three, it might have been a two, but Ron Harper hit a shot for the Bulls that clearly did not beat the clock, and they allowed it. That's a five-point swing right there in a one-point game. Of course, you don't know how things would play out with the score different as they move toward the end, but that's five points right there. Easily, easily correctable under the present rules. Talking to Bob Costas on the Mike Lubick podcast, as you were just speaking, I went back. It was the 1988 NBA Finals, Bob. Pistons were going to win in Game 6, and Lambert got called for an absolute. It's like the rough in the passer call on Brady in the uh, the Chiefs game. Okay, oh, yeah, Absolutely phantom call. Kareem was taking a sky hook on the baseline, yep. and he was barely touched. And Kareem was a very, very good free throw shooter, career 72% for a man his size. And he went to the line and knocked them both down. Isn't that the way it happened? Yeah. And, 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 yeah. and, and they went on to win the championship. And, or I think or the Pistons would have won three in a row, right? Yeah, they would have. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Costas, in addition to everything else, not only uh, an NBA host for years, but did play-by-play uh, for years. He was as good at that as he was good at everything else. Bob, how do you account? There was a slump going on in the NFL. Okay, the, the Kaepernick thing, the anthem thing, and and now the sport is 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 as big as it's ever been. Goodell said yesterday, "There's never been a better time to be in business with the NFL, or whatever it was that he said yesterday." How do you account? How do you account for the fact that this sport continues to thrive when a guy who was a star player is clearly being blackballed because of his political beliefs? Then that we we have now seen the effects and the studies of what this sport does to mm-hmm. players' brains, and and the audience just doesn't seem to care. Yeah, they separate it. It's like the Roman circuses. It's gladiator stuff. Uh, Bernie Goldberg had a terrific piece on HBO's Real Sports this week uh, that just pulled together all the information that. Uh, we've been absorbing over the last several years and the conclusion was that the not only is the participation in youth football markedly down either kids aren't playing at all or they're playing flag football but participation among kids whose families are middle class or more affluent than that is down dramatically well participation 
among those middle class or less by affluence um, is not only holding steady, it's gone up, partly because there are more roster spaces to, to be filled. Right. But so it, it's a weird thing where a lot of people, you know, across demographic lines, a lot of people are saying, I'm not going to let my kid play, but I'm certainly not going to give up my, my fantasy league. I'm not going to give up my right to shiver through a zillion timeouts in December at an exorbitant price to come to the games. I'm, I'm obsessed with it. And, you know, football is kind of a bloated Goliath in my view. Um, but for many people, it's a manic obsession, not a sweet romance, not something that you associate with fondness or our quaint national pastime, not something in which you're interested in, but something to which you're addicted. It just, it, it, it no longer rings true for me. Talking to my friend Bob Costas, um, Again, I would let let's shift to baseball, which you'll be uh, happy with the subject change. And um, I was I was in Cooperstown um, last summer when you were inducted, and um, it, it was a great day. I mean, for all of us, uh, you know, it, it was it was a great day for your, your family. It was a great day for your friends. It was uh, again the things you said about baseball. I thought not only wonderful to hear, but kind of needed to be said at this particular time in America. And I haven't asked you this question before. Mm-hmm. Was the and you were there all week long, and and and, and your kids were there, and it's great. Uh, and, and, and 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 your wife and, and Bob. Was it everything? That, was it everything you hoped it would be? Very few things in life are perfect. Not just really good or even great, but absolutely perfect. That week was one of the most perfect things I have ever experienced in my life in every way. Um, there's still an afterglow from it. And and the kids were with you, and then Jill came, Jill came later in the week. Your wife Jill came later in the week, right? Yeah. And that, then for three then, days, it was just me, Keith, and Taylor. So we could have that time together, and then other friends and family came in toward the middle of the week. And it was again it, for anybody who's never experienced the whole weekend in Cooperstown. It's something you ought to. And it's hard. Listen, Bob, you you know for for the fans, it's hard to get there. I I, I ran into oh, yeah. some friends of of mine who had gone up to hear your speech. I said, "Where are you staying?" They said, "Utica." I mean, I grew up in Oneida. You went to Syracuse. Right. You know what a haul it is to get from there to Cooperstown, New York. But it's it's you feel, Bob. Do you not? feel once you are walking down the street mm-hmm. that you have stepped into a time warp and that Absolutely. it's actually 1955 it's it's so <clears throat> gracious and so wonderful and when you're with the hall of famers and you see the new guys and the way they're accepted into this fraternity there's among them and how they relate to each other there are no uh tears you know, Willie, Willie Mays or Hank Aaron doesn't look and say, well, these five guys, Sandy Koufax, come over here, and they, but these guys aren't quite as good as... No, you're all Hall of Famers. And the feeling of fraternity and appreciation and mutual respect, and then you sit out on that veranda of the Otisaga Hotel and look out over the yep. 18th hole of the golf course and onto the lake, and you look to one side and there's Al Kaline. You look, you look to another and there's Hank Aaron. And, and then, not this past year, but other years, Tom Seaver comes walking in. And you say hello to him, but you don't want to interrupt because he's in a conversation with Sandy Koufax. You know, how much better can it be? And, you know, here's a cool thing. And I didn't know this until this year. Johnny Bench takes every new Hall of Famer and says, come with me, and has the, 
the new newcomers sit down next to him in a rocking chair on the veranda of the Otisaga, and he says the same thing to each of them. I want you to sit here with me for five minutes. But when I finish talking now, neither one of us is going to say a word. And I want you to look out over that lake and look around and see the other people on this veranda and think about what you've accomplished and think about what this means when you've joined this club and have the level of appreciation that all of us have for what this means. And then he shuts up and just sits there for five minutes with the guy. We're talking with the great Bob Costas on the Mike Lubica podcast. More with Bob in a minute. But first, a word from our dear friends at Geico. There's a quick way you could save money. Just switch to Geico. All it takes is 15 minutes to find out if you could save 15% or more on car insurance. And Geico offers coverage for more than just car insurance. Got a motorcycle? Geico's got you covered. Got an RV? Covered. Got a boat? Covered. How about a homeowner's or renter's insurance? You bet Geico's got you covered. Go to Geico.com today and see how much you could save that's Geico.com. Talking to Bob Costas about um, his induction into the broadcaster's wing of the Baseball Hall of Fame last summer. Bob, you know, we just had the, 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 the Hall of Fame um, uh, vote announced. Uh, you, you were on TV for hours that day. Robert, there, nothing. I'm not diminishing getting to Canton in football. I'm not diminishing getting to Springfield in basketball. Okay. And the, the broadcasters and, and everybody, it's, it's a magical thing if their career has brought them to that moment. There is still nothing like those envelopes being open. And the, and, and I'll just add this and then you take off on this, Bob. <sighs> No, sports fans are still way more interested in this and the debate and the conversation than any other Hall of Fame induction in sports. No doubt about it. Baseball has uh, the deepest history and statistics and records and generational comparisons matter more. I'm not saying they don't exist in other sports, but they just matter more and always have in baseball, which is the real crying shame of the steroid era. It's always difficult to compare across generations. You don't know for sure how Joe DiMaggio would have done against Walter Johnson, who preceded him, or against Randy Johnson, who followed him. But at least it's possible to imagine that, and it's possible to take those records and and apply modern analytics if you want to and, and put them in some kind of context. But the steroid era blew all that stuff away. With all due respect to basketball, which I love, people don't know, by and large, what Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's lifetime point total is. They're actually surprised to learn that Carl Malone is second and Michael Jordan is third. They know that Jerry West is great. Can they name his exact points per game average? Can they tell you what Oscars figures were in the year that he averaged a triple-double? I mean, some people can, but it's not right on the tip of their tongues the way 714 was and then 755, the way Ted Williams' 406 is or DiMaggio's 56, the way Bob Gibson's ERA in 68 was. All those things, the casual baseball fan knows. And what happened during the steroid era is that all that stuff got blown up. And it isn't just the record holders. Bonds was a legitimately great player, but his late career statistics are not authentic, and his 762 is not authentic. Um, But also, it's the various places on the ladder. Uh, The guy who's 12th might not have been 12th, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying 12 randomly. I don't know who's 12th. But people who passed Mike Schmidt or Mickey Mantle or Reggie Jackson in some cases would not have done so without steroids. And that matters way more in baseball than it does in other sports. 
Talking to my friend Bob Costas on the Mike Lubick Podcast. Robert, um, I was happy for Edgar Martinez. Um, you know that I have been writing about Mucina for years. Um, having looked at the vote count um, this year, mm-hmm. do you think, and, and what a great discussion uh, you guys had on the MLB Network, especially you and Tom Berducci, uh, uh, talking about Bonds and Clemens. Um, do you think they will get in during their remaining years on the ballot? If they do, it's going to be razor close. Peter Gammons and I were talking before we went on the air, and we both thought, given the sizable jump that Bonds and Clemens, whose vote totals have almost always been exactly yeah, the I same, yeah. no matter where they were, high or low, almost exactly the same every year. So we thought that if they took a jump into the mid-60s, that they were on their way. But instead, they only moved up about two percentage points or two and a half percentage points to like 59 or something, which meant that relative to the jump they took the year before, they had stalled. Now they have three years left. Here's the combination of things that could help them. Some of the clutter on the ballot has been cleared because four guys got in. And even though Fred McGriff deserved a better fate, in my opinion. Mine too. I voted for him every year. I voted for him every year, Bob. Uh, most people don't realize that only baseball writers vote. I have a voice, but not a vote. It's insane. Uh, Let me just stop right there. It's insane that you, Bob Costas, and Vince Scully, and we, right. I can, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to lead everybody out. Don't get to vote on this. Is insane. It's insane. Tim, McC- Tim McCarver doesn't have a vote, right? You know. But anyway, um, where was I? Uh, oh, here's the here's the deal. So, Fred McGriff not on the ballot, along with the four who got in. That's five. Next year, the only newcomer worthy of consideration, and he'll be unanimous or near unanimous, is Derek Jeter. So that's just one added to the list. The following year, there is nobody who will come onto the ballot that will receive serious consideration. So that makes it more likely that Kurt Schilling, who's in a different category than Bonds and Clemens, but that he moves up, and maybe some people clear a space, some people who are ambivalent about Bonds and Clemens clear a space somewhere on the ballot for them now. And then there's also this. Tom Verducci's research shows that writers who have been, become eligible, 10-year members of the BBWAA, writers who have become eligible in recent years, 85% of them have voted for Bonds and Clemens. So as you add a few more of those writers becoming eligible, and perhaps as a few more older guys drop off, or, and this part we can't know for sure because we can't read their minds, there might be some writers, some holdouts on Bonds and Clemens, who say, you know what, I'm going to make them sweat. I'm going to make them wait until the 10th year before I vote for them. And I don't know how many of those guys there are, but if you take some of the newcomers with some of the holdouts who come around at the last minute and you take the clutter off the ballot, maybe, maybe they sneak past 75%, but I don't see them ever getting into the 80s where it'll be close if they make it at all. And and it's so clear now that um, Alex Rodriguez, who is now treated like the mayor of Major League Baseball, despite being the captain of the uh, Biogenesis All-Stars and, and uh, being outed as a performance-enhancing drug user himself, he's playing the, that, this plays to, into what you just said, Robert. He's playing the long game here. I mean, if, right. if, if my math might be off, and you probably know, but he's he'll be when he once he goes on the ballot, he'll be on the ballot until what, 2031, 2032. Well, it's, he, it's, it's three years from now, right? Or so, he's and then ten years after that, 13 so years he's got 
So he's playing the long game. He's he gave a very nuanced uh, interview about Bonds and Clemens, and 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 you know makes the case that the people who who believe that Bonds and Clemens should be in now that they didn't start using, he says, because he has no way of knowing this till they were thirty three or thirty four. And and so Alex, he's it, Bob. It's like the Democratic um, nomination. It's never too early to start. Okay, and and Alex it started officially running for the Hall of Fame the other day. Mm-hmm. But he he acknowledged that he's made his own bed. Those were his very words. Uh, it's my mistakes, and if it keeps me out of the Hall of Fame, I'm the one responsible for it. So that's that's a a good straightforward position to take. Then there are others who will parse this differently. There are some who are uncomfortable with it, but with a tortured analysis, say Bonds and Clemens are in a separate category from Sosa or McGuire um, or whomever else, Palmero, because they were surpassingly great, not just Hall of Fame great, but all-time great, before our best information tells us they ever took anything more powerful than a protein shake. Um, so you have that, but then you have people like Manny Ramirez or A-Rod, who tested positive Ramirez three times, um, not with a test, but with non-analytic evidence in the case of biogenesis, once with a test, once with biogenesis, A-Rod twice. After the rules were in place, testing was in place, punishment had been codified. So a lot of people, and you can agree or disagree with this outlook, but a lot of people placed those guys in a separate category from those who used before all this stuff was codified, even though every one of those guys knew they were doing something wrong. Otherwise, they would have just come out and admitted it, and it was against federal law, and it was against stated MLB policy, even though until uh, the early 2000s that policy never had any teeth or never had any punishment or testing attached to it. So they knew they were doing something wrong, but again, there are people who parse these differences um, among the 400 plus plus voters. You know, it's funny you bring up Manny Ramirez because what, what, when we finish this podcast today, I'm going to write a column for MLB.com. And, and clearly, you know, we don't know how it's going to play out with Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. I think in no way this is collusion. I think the industry has become resistant yeah. to the pool host contract, to the Cabrera contract, to the Cano contracts, okay? And, and I was talking to my editor, Matt Myers, about this today, and I said to him, to me, the most successful long-term business arrangement with contracts like that was Manny Ramirez. And again, it turned out that he was juicy. He was probably juiced to the gills the whole time. Usually when you get one of those insane contracts. Now, it's different with Machado and Harper because they're 26 years old. But so often when these contracts are given out, Bob, they're being paid more for what they did than what the team signing them thinks they're going to do. Manny Ramirez, the eight years he had in Cleveland, before he signed the $160 million eight-year contract with the, the Red Sox, and then the eight years he had, you can look it up, those years were almost, he was the same player, Bob. He was as good after he got to Boston as he was in, in Cleveland. That's unusual and i yeah. think this is going into the analytic group think that's going on now now again maybe harper is still going to break the bank but this is a long way around to saying maybe the modern contract that we're talking about is the one that jd martinez got when he had to wait until february this year a five-year contract mm-hmm. 110 million dollars outs that began i think after this coming season and i think that's the way the industry's going yeah, I think there are a lot of teams waiting uh, for the market to settle a little bit before they make their play. 
Machado was in a different category than Harper, not by age, but because Machado kind of messed his profile up uh, last year and may have to take a short-term contract to reestablish. Joel Sherman wrote about this in the Post the other day. Um, kind of reestablish that he's a good guy, that he'll hustle, that he'll play hard, that he won't be a negative influence on his team, blah, 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 because teams have misgivings about that. But in any case, Harper and Machado and their agents thought, as you said, Mike, that, hey, they're, they're in their mid-20s, their primes are ahead of them, they're in a different category than Pujols. But the analytics have made teams cautious yep. about that sort of thing. So uh, you might get the same average um, annual amount in a few special cases, but you're not going to get 10 years. You may not even get eight years. Like you said, five years, uh, teams are willing to take that risk, especially if they have certain outs and options. You know, I mean, I, I, again, the, the J.D. Martinez, and I don't know if we've talked about this or not. I understand why Mookie Betts was the MVP. He, he, he out-trouted Trout last year. Absolutely mm. deserved to be the MVP. But if there was an award for most important player, Bob, it was J.D. Martinez because the Red Sox made no dramatic changes on a team that had gone out to the Astros in the first round the year before. He completely transformed that batting order. He yeah. transformed it for the people hitting in front of him, and he transformed it for the people. So in, in a way, whether it's $22 million, I forget what the first year was, or $25 million, he turned out to be a, a, a bargain. Yes, and he if did. he wants to hit the market again after this season, he can do it. I thought that deal was extremely fair to both sides. Absolutely. And if the Red Sox should lose him, and they'll make every effort within reason to keep him, but if the Red Sox should lose him, it still was a worthwhile investment that paid huge dividends. I still would have voted for Betts because Betts is a great outfielder, not just a gold level. He's a great outfielder. He's a great base runner. Um, so he was the best all-around player in the American League last year. But Martinez had a tremendous impact on that team. Bob, I, I, I've written this, and we've talked about this uh, for years. It, and and there's, there's an element of scorekeeping that goes on between players and players and agents and agents. And I have said this for a year. The, the, the difference in the money, say, for Bryce Harper, that he might get from the Nationals as opposed to the Phillies, as opposed to the White Sox, or one of Scott Boris's um, uh, mystery teams, it won't affect a single day of the rest of his life. Okay? Right. It won't affect. So sometimes the biggest deal isn't the best deal. And if, if, if Boros and Dan Lozano are set on breaking some kind of record, they can probably do it. But it, sometimes I wonder if it serves their clients' careers. Well, the ball player has to realize that the agent works for him. And the good agent should recognize that too. You want to get the best possible deal, but there are components of the deal. What team do you want to play with? What city do you want to play in? All those other factors, personal factors, and as you say, the money is going to be so large. You know, the difference when, you know, a couple of generations ago, you could see the difference, the considerable difference between making 500000 which is still a good wage in the real world, and making a million. The difference between making $110 million and making $125 million or making $200 million and $230 million is not as great as that $500,000 difference between $500,000 and a million, um, especially if there are other considerations that matter to you, where you play and who you play with. 
It's why I've uh, in the back of my mind, I keep thinking that Bryce Harper may work his way all the way back to the Washington Nationals. But what you're saying about five hundred thousand dollars back in the day, there was a there was a wonderful uh, watering hole in Costas's in my neighborhood named T.J. Tucker. And it was owned yeah. by our friend Tommy O'Neill and mm-hmm. Tucker Fredrickson. And we were standing at the bar one night with a colorful ex New York City cop named Charlie Burke, who was a great friend of Jack oh, yeah. Walker's. And he's telling a story. I, I know you were there because we looked at each other. He's telling the story one night. And this, and again, Costas and I were new to New York and just loving being around guys like this. And he's telling the story. And he finally said, and that's when $400,000 a year was a lot of money. <laughs> and either I turned to Costas or Costas turned to me and I said, you mean it's not anymore? Right. And right. Because it, it seemed like um, a lot to me, and now oh, yeah. it's just grown and grown and grown. And and Manny Machado, you're right. It's interesting, Bob. I talked to somebody who knew him with the Orioles not long ago, and he said all he had to do was go to Los Angeles and keep his mouth shut for two months, Bob. Right. And he still couldn't do it. Right. And you know, there's something else when when you talk about you know doing a deeper dive before you make an investment like this. It's one thing to hold on and be caller number three from Syosset on some talk show and say, hey, why don't the Phillies do this or the White Sox do that? But when you're going to make an investment of that size, you're going to do all your due diligence. And Manny Machado had huge numbers at Camden Yards, which is a hitter's paradise. His numbers on the road is not quite a a Colorado-style drop-off between home and road, but it's a significant drop-off between Camden Yards and other ballparks. Now, that doesn't mean that Manny Machado isn't a good player anytime, anywhere. He is a very, very good player, but it's still a, a, a yellow light. It's a, it's a caution. And, you know, we're talking about these big contracts, and, and you know, Bob and I are, are in the same lane on this. Every star athlete or performer should get whatever they can possibly get. I, sure. I, I'm, I'm, I'm always for that, okay? But when, when you look at some of these big contracts, Robert, do you think that there is any way that the Yankees would go back and do the Stanton deal again, knowing that it might keep them now from mm-hmm. spending the money on the guy that they always wanted way more than they wanted Giancarlo Stanton. Meaning Harper. Yeah. Yeah, because the Yankees, I mean, obviously they won 100 games last year, and their bullpen is crazy uh, in both depth and quality. So they're going to be a contender again, even in the same division as the Red Sox. But... That lineup is right-handed heavy in a ballpark that favors left-handed hitters. You think of Bryce Harper in the middle of that lineup, just slot him where Stanton would have been, and in that ballpark, they might very well get more production out of that, and Harper is a better defender than Stanton is. Look, I'm not saying that any team wouldn't want all things being roughly equal to have John Carlos Stanton. Of course they would. But if you said to the Yankees right now, to your point, um, you can have Harper instead of Stanton, I think they'd make that deal. And don't, don't you think it's ironic that the Yankees voluntarily gave Stanton the exact, almost the exact same amount of years and money that they had once given Alex Rodriguez when he opted out in 2007 and then were kicking themselves the closer they got to the end. And then they turned around and gave the exact same kind of deal to, to Stan, I keep telling Yankee fans, hey, listen, don't worry. You've got them for nine more years or whatever yeah. it is. It's like insane. Uh, you know, I guess it looked better because the Marlins absorbed a portion of the cost. So, 
Hey, you know, uh, getting back to the Hall of Fame for one second, and and again, the voices of baseball are just different from the voices of other sports. You grew up with the magic of of baseball voices in in the night. Um, 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 anybody who knows Bob Costas knows that the way they know about the Mickey Mantle card. Um, but there was a milestone by one of the most beloved figures in the history of the sport last week. Your man Euchre turned eighty five. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a, a texting spree with Uke on Saturday, his 85th birthday, and uh, you'll be happy to know that he is just as quick, just as sharp as ever. I mean, he will fire back a text that other people would have had to think about for 10 minutes to craft. He'll fire it back in 10 seconds, and it would be just like a response he offered Johnny Carson in 1975. Bob, just to, I, I, <laughs> there are so many stories from Euchre about when you, you when you worked with Uke and Joe Morgan doing baseball on NBC, but but I, I have I'm going to presume upon you to tell the hepatitis story. It's oh. because Bob, there's not a lot of funny hepatitis stories. No. This one is. No, it, there doesn't have much competition in the hepatitis category. But it's Game Six of the World <laughs> Series in Atlanta, 1995, uh, Cleveland and Atlanta. And Joe Morgan is to my right, and Uke is to my left. And Morgan starts talking. It's a close game, which the Braves eventually won one nothing uh, to win the World Series. And Morgan starts talking in the late innings about how Sparky Anderson called all the Reds together when they were down 3 nothing in Game 7 and 75 at Fenway Park and came back to win. And what he said to all of them, and we don't have to get it all back at once, and we're the best team, and blah, blah, blah. And he's talking about Pete Rose and Johnny Bench and Sparky Anderson and Tony Perez. And when he finishes, I turn to Euchre, half to amuse myself and half just to be polite. I say, Euchre, you ever play in the World Series? And he says, well, I was with the Cardinals in 64, but when we played the Yankees in the series, I was on the disabled list, curveball outside. So wh what was wrong with you? He says, I had hepatitis, fouled back to the screen, one and one. How did you get that? The trainer injected me with it. <laughs> Bob, he's one of the genuinely funny people. Oh, my God. That any Naturally of us will. funny. Naturally funny. <laughs> and, and, and fast. You're right. He's so fast in the moment. It's, you know, I told you plenty of times when, when, when the late, great Dick Schaap was hosting the sports reporters. We mm -hmm. do the show and I'd be about halfway back home and I think, oh, my God, I should have said that in that, that context. And, the, and Schaap always said it in, in, in the moment. He had that kind of uh, wit. And, and, and I got a couple other baseball questions. As usual, I've kept you longer than I told you I was going to. Okay. Um, speaking of Shap, um, we are both... Costas didn't know he was participating in this documentary. I did. Um, the, isn't this deadline artist about uh, Pete Hamill and Jimmy Breslin on HBO just a wonderful piece of work? It's great. And if you understand what tabloid papers and tabloid then did not mean the national Enquirer or tmz that kind of stuff didn't mean that it was just a different kind of gritty uh voice of the streets type thing you found it in the sports pages as well as in uh the general news pages but the two greatest practitioners on the news side were breslin and hamill um and this documentary not only captures it all for those of us who knew it you know it better than I do, but I knew it pretty well. Um, but also, I think if you're not, if you, if you live in Iowa and you're not familiar with it, 
you can plug in at the beginning of that, and you'll come away with a better understanding of something that was really that was really important in its time. I was speaking to Pete Hamill. I finally, I, I had not, I, I wasn't able to go to the premiere. I'd been up in New York, um, as you know, in December. We had a, an unbelievably wonderful tribute to Pete Hamill at, at NYU. I finally saw it last night. And I told Pete after I saw it, um, you know, it, 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 the old cliche, I laughed, I cried. I, I did both in that, but I was yep. mourning a world which becomes more and more distant and and but in this world where the lie keeps being told about fake news okay and 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 newspapers and the media are under attack in a way they never have been in this country when when i was reminded last night of how jimmy breslin stood up to the whole city during the bernard getz subway shooting okay and and refused to run with the crowd and i i all i thought to myself was that's why he and Pete made me want to do what I did for 40 years in New York newspapers. You know, they were both so streetwise and avoided maudlin sentimentality. And yet they wrote, you know, Breslin's style was punchy, but at times it was poetic, and he just didn't want to admit that. They both wrote with such grace and such style, and they had such real heart that although they crafted it in a way that you didn't feel necessarily hearts and flowers, they expressed honest sentiment with tremendous skill. Breslin would never own up to it. It was ah, yeah, yeah. But he did. And I, I spoke about this in the documentary, and, and obviously the Gravediggers column, which is probably the oh most famous newspaper column ever written. It, Jimmy wrote a column about the man who dug the grave for John F. Kennedy uh, in 1963, Clifton Pollock. But for my money, and I, I spoke about it last night and when I, I saw myself speaking about it, death in emergency room one, when mm -hmm. Breslin got to Dallas and somehow got to Dr. Malcolm Perry and told the story of this doctor getting the call to go work on the president of the United States. Again, if anybody, it's available to anybody. It's called Death in Emergency Room One in the New York Herald Tribune. It was, it, to me, it changed the game in newspapers forever. And, you know, Breslin and Hamill, too. I mean, Hamill wrote about sports frequently, but Breslin was a sports writer for a while. And he wrote the great book about Casey Stengel's oh. early hapless but lovable Mets, Can Anybody Here Play This Game? And one of his axioms was that the best stories are usually found in the loser's locker room rather than the winner's. And Breslin's voice was in my head in 1986 when I was in the Red Sox clubhouse <laughs> in the bottom of the 10th, and they had the two-run lead with two out and nobody on, and the whole thing slipped away, and all those years of waiting that wouldn't end until 2004 slipped away in a horrible fashion. And I realized, even though the interviews would be of the Mets on the field, the better story was in the clubhouse that I was in, not only after the sixth game, but after the seventh when they lost it all. Bob, tell the story about you going in there. You're getting ready to do the trophy presentation, right. and then, and then, the aftermath of the scene around you. Oh my gosh! After the after the Mets came back. Well, they send me down to the clubhouse. Marv Albert had uh, the Mets, and I had the Red Sox. And so they send me down to the clubhouse in the 10th inning when uh, the Red Sox take the lead. Um, Dave Henderson had a homer, and Wade Boggs knocked in another run, a seeming insurance run with a single. So now there I am. And they build a, a platform, and they put the protective 
whatever they used over the lockers so that the clothing wouldn't be ruined by the anticipated champagne spray. And then in comes Commissioner Uberoth with the championship trophy on some kind of rolling table with a cloth over it. And at his side is frail uh, Jean Yawkey, the widow of Tom Yawkey. And she was so frail, a stiff wind might have blown her from Queens to the Bronx. And there she is standing there in anticipation of what her husband never saw as the owner of the Red Sox, and now um, Carter singles to left. And we're getting set up, and I'm listening to Vin and Joe call it in the earpiece, and the cameramen are in place, and then Kevin Mitchell pinch hits a single to center. And I say to Mike Weissman, who's producing the game, I say, Mike, what do I do if the Mets tie the game or win the game? He said, get your ass out of there as fast as humanly possible. And then Ray Knight fists one over Marty Barrett's head in the shallow right. (laughs) And a run scores. And now Mookie Wilson comes up. And he has an epic at bat. And there's a wild pitch. And uh, the tying run scores. And then after several more foul balls, the ball goes through Buckner's legs. And everybody clears out. It's amazing. It was like the way they change a set in a Broadway play. (laughs) Everybody clears out within 30 seconds, it seems. The, the covering comes off the lockers. They roll the platform out. They take Mrs. Yawkey out. Uberoth disappears. The cameramen disappear. Somehow it's all out. And I slip out the door of the clubhouse, and the Red Sox are coming down the tunnel. And they're dead silent, ashen-faced, except for one word. Somebody slams a bat against the wall of the tunnel, the concrete wall of the tunnel, and there's one word, and you can guess what that word is. Yeah. And that was the only thing that pierced the silence. And now I'm standing there almost against the wall watching them trace past in some state of shock as this thing has slipped away. But as John McNamara told me afterwards, we'll play tomorrow. And it turned out that tomorrow's game was rained out. So they got pushed to Monday, which allowed Bruce Hurst to start instead of oil can Boyd. And they actually had, people forget, a 3 nothing lead into the sixth inning. And they actually had a chance to tie it after the Mets went ahead in the eighth inning. They had the tying run on base, on second base, with nobody out, and they couldn't bring it home um, in the eighth. And then uh, in the bottom of the eighth, Strawberry hit a home run, and they got some insurance runs, and Orozco finished it off in the top of the ninth, and that was that. I've kept Costas far longer than I said I would. I, I want to ask you one more baseball question. Um, mm-hmm. It is your first love. It is, it is my first love. Our dear friend Bob Ryan calls it the greatest game ever uh, invented by mortal minds. Um, do you feel that it has become too generational, or do you believe that young people are coming to this sport, um, even though, Bob, it's not always reflected in television ratings, because I, I, you know, I, I've always said you cannot simply measure the power of this sport by network television ratings, right. and I, I, I was dead wrong. I thought Red Sox and, and Dodgers were going to pull a big number, and they did not. They might have had it gone back to Fenway. If they had a sixth game and then the jackpot, a seventh game, uh, I think it would have done well. But the thing they have to face is even those of us who loved the game, loved it once for its leisurely pace, that was part of its appeal, but now it often has a lethargic pace. And their problem is that what analytics uh, and the new age view of things tells managers and front offices is the best way to win is not the best way to entertain. And they've got to convince everyone in the game 
that while you certainly don't want to give up your edge, you certainly don't want to, your number one objective is to win, we have to figure out a way to reconcile this with the product, because all of us have to be concerned with the appeal of the product. Um, And what to do about that uh, is a longer conversation than this one. But that is baseball's main problem. The way these games and postseason games tend to go longer because there's so much strategy uh, at play, when you've got games that routinely go four hours, and those games are starting, postseason games, after 8 o'clock Eastern time, or after 7, I forget which in some cases, but in any case, it gets difficult for people to stick with it, even if they're interested. All right. I said I'd ask the last question. I, I, I lied. Um, th- oh, this God. is my last question, okay? Okay. I'm watching you last night talk to Jimmy on Later, and Bob had an, an acclaimed late-night show that came after... Conan O'Brien um, uh, for, for years on NBC, and it ran for a long time, and it was uh, uh, not only acclaimed, but, but um, d- d- decorated with, with honors. And please tell the story of how your relentless grilling one night got Mary Lou Henner to reveal something about herself. You know, Mary Lou Henner, I forget what the clinical name for this gift is, but Mary Lou Henner is one of those people, uh, it's like a savant-type capacity she can tell you the exact day and date um if you say july 16th 1962 she'll say oh that was a tuesday i don't know if it was that was a tuesday and i was in the third grade and i was sitting next to sally jones uh and the teacher was telling us about george washington and the cherry tree um and she recalls everything that way so I was tipped to that by the producer. highly superior autobiographical memory. I think it's the, the long way to describe <laughs> well, it. That it is. So I was tipped to that uh, before I sat down with her. And I said, you know, I hear, understand you have this facility. And she said, yes. And I said, is it a blessing or a curse? And she said, oh, it's a blessing because you always have something over on everybody. So I said, okay. And I threw out a couple of random dates. And she recited something like what I just said. And then I thought, well, why don't I give her a date where everybody remembers where they were? And as I quickly had it passed through my mind, I thought November 22nd, 1963 was too dark. So I said July 20th, 1969, which is when Neil Armstrong and company walked on the moon. And so I go July 20th, 1969. And she starts twirling her hair with her (laughs) index finger. And she says, who told you this? And I said, well, nobody. It just seemed like a, a reasonable one to throw in there. She says, well, okay. And she starts it. No, wait a minute. Who told you this? Nobody. I just picked it at random. Okay. Well, wait a minute. You, you, what, what, why are we doing that? So it went like this, like back and forth, stop and start for like 30 seconds. And then she goes, okay, okay. That's the night I lost my virginity. And the crew cracks up. There was no studio audience. But the cameramen and the stage managers and the techs are cracking up. And she's looking around with this kind of half-amused and half-embarrassed look on her face. And then I say, well, one thing we know for sure, Neil Armstrong wasn't the culprit. then, (laughs) Then they laugh again. And then without any further prompting, she then says, there was no further question or prodding, she goes, standing up in the shower. And I say, I didn't mean to pry that out of you. Mary Lou, and then they laugh again, and I say, it seems to me that this is the sort of thing one would remember even if they weren't blessed with this particular facility. And she agreed to that, 
And then I haven't seen her in a long, long time, but I did cross paths with her a few times in the next four or five years after that. And every time she told me that almost every week, someone will stop her and say, where were you when men walked on the moon? My friend Bob Costas, he is now in the Baseball Hall of Fame. He, how many primetime hosting gigs on, on, on the Olympics for you? 12. No, no, 12. 11 primetime and 12 overall. I was the late night host in 88. Baseball play-by-play, NFL play-by-play, NBA play-by-play, hosting duties. Again, um, later, it, it, no one has ever, I, I can say this with great confidence, nobody's ever had a career like this in broadcasting. And every time I have him on, I think I should be bugging him more. But thank you for doing this today, my friend. Okay, man. Take care. The great Bob Costas on the Mike Lubega podcast. Um, pretty soon we're going to two a week um, because of conversations like this. I don't have to do a lot. Costas carried the whole thing today. Continue to download, continue to subscribe, and uh, we'll talk to you next week, everybody. The Mike Lubega podcast is produced and distributed by Compass Media Networks in conjunction with Hiltzik Creative. For iPhone users, go to the podcast app and search the Mike Lupica podcast. Click on the Mike Lupica podcast icon and subscribe. For non-iPhone users, you can listen on Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast platform.